This podcast episode was recorded about a month ago. Since then, there have been some significant developments in the world, not the least of which is the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the United States. And I wanted to make mention of this in the lead into today's episode because in some way it is related to the content we'll be discussing. And as we tend to do here, I'm going to turn to the experts on this one and just summarize a tweet thread from Planned Parenthood Toronto about what you can do here in this country at this time. Now, first, you can support existing experienced networks that are already doing the work. It's not the time now to create a whole new organization network. Turn to those organizations, the experts, to help those in need. And don't go referring people to strangers offering to help them find abortions. Don't push for legislation in Canada. It isn't needed. Instead, you can fight to strengthen enforcement of the Canada Health Act. Now remember, abortion is still not a settled issue in Canada. A lot of people still fighting against it. And increased access to abortion remains something worth advocating for. And finally, and this is the part that relates to today's podcast episode, don't exclude trans, non-binary, and gender-diverse people from this conversation. People of all genders can become pregnant and require access to abortion. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association. Welcome to Mindful. My guests today are two gender diverse people, one of whom is a clinical psychologist working in Ottawa, the other of whom is my daughter who lives in my house. My name is Jessie Baugh. I use they them pronouns. I'm a genderqueer psychologist. I work primarily with trans non-binary gender diverse folk in uh, Ontario and in Quebec. Hi, I'm Ada. I'm backseating. I'm uh, a funny trans woman. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. All right. Well, and, and you've just gone through uh, all the process. You're in the middle of the process yes. with HRT and the rest of it. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, as we go along. But first, uh, Dr. Boss, I just wanted to ask about your practice. I mean, as a transgender queer psychologist, you're seeing all kinds of patients who are also going through a similar thing. Is that a big deal for the clients that you see to be able to have a psychologist that sort of represents them in that way? It is. I would say that's like the number one thing that, you know, when people reach out to me, first line in the email is like, you know, it's so rare to find a psychologist or a therapist who is also trans or gender diverse. And so that's something that people really value finding someone who not only has like the, the clinical experience, but the lived experience knowing what it's like to be someone who has had like questions with their own gender. So my understanding is that it is really important for my clients. And, you know, as someone like myself um, looking for a therapist, that's also something that I highly value. What does that look like exactly? What are some of the things that you help people with? Do they come to you when they're questioning at the beginning or do they come to you a little later on when they're making a transition? What kind of things do you see in that practice? I would say I meet people who are anywhere along that process, anywhere along that gender journey. So some people reach out, they're questioning. Um, and some, you know, some of the folks I work with too, at first they don't even come up to me for gender issues, right? They come to work on something else and then down the line we start questioning gender and then we work on that as well. So, you know, um, for some people it's questioning, for some people it's around following them in their transition, supporting them, helping them gain access to trans, like means of transitioning. And for some people, it's about supporting them and coming out, you know, whether it's coming out with the family, coming out at work, at school, 
That's also something that I help people with. A big part of the work that I do, unfortunately, is about helping people unlearn the hate that they learn to to have for themselves. So, you know, growing up in a society that doesn't necessarily give space for trans people, if you don't see yourself represented in the media or anywhere in society, it's kind of hard to learn to love yourself. And so a big part of my work is helping people work through that, like unlearning that hatred. Uh, we call this like internalized transphobia. So helping people break free from that internalized transphobia. Yeah, I can also agree with the, the fact that, well, at least I speak for myself here. Uh, if I was to see a psychiatrist or a therapist or someone who's like uh, someone of the like, and they are also genderqueer, I can tell you I would be 100% more comfortable than someone who is not. Right. But you are seeing someone at uh, Centertown Community Center here. Uh, are they genderqueer, the person who... Uh, they're going to see? Yeah. Uh, no, they're not, but they're, they've also done this for a number of years, and I know that for a fact. So I know, that, like, I have the comfortability of knowing that they know the situation, and I know the situation, and that's how that works. That's a very medical, uh, <laughs> like, relationship, that one. Right, right. And, I mean, that's sort of something that I wanted to talk to you about, Dr. Boss, too, is this, the notion of gender-affirming care for you know, people who are seeking therapy in, in this way. Are there still psychologists out there, psychiatrists, mental health professionals who don't provide gender affirming care? Or have we got to a point where we realize that that is obviously the way to go? I wish we were at that point. I really wish we were. Um, despite, you know, overwhelming scientific evidence showing that uh, gender affirming stance is, is life-saving care. Gender affirming care is life-saving care. Uh, Despite that, we still have people who question it. We still have people who um, don't practice it necessarily, sadly, and it's, it's pretty scary. Now, I understand that you're part of a committee who's uh, putting together a policy statement for the CPA on this very subject. Is that part of it? Is that going to be uh, one of the main thrusts of that policy statement, reaffirming that gender-affirming care is, is the obvious mm -hmm. way to go? Mm -hmm. The intention behind that policy uh, or position statement, the intention behind that is to really send a strong message um, that the way to go is bodily autonomy for the community, right? So giving back the power to the community to make those decisions. The trans community, gender diverse people are very much capable of determining what's best for them. And we want to highlight that. So that's that's one of the... Uh, foundations of the gender affirming care. So yes, that is something that we do bring up in this in this policy piece. I think a big part of this policy piece is really recognizing the necessity to have a human rights lens when we talk about gender issues. So that's something that is often not part of the discussion, but you know, gender diversity is part of human rights. Gender diverse people living authentically is human rights. And so that's a something that we really want to highlight uh, and also talking about gender diversity rather than always talking about like the pathological aspect of like gender dysphoria right like a lot of the conversation especially in psychology and psychiatry revolve around gender dysphoria you know that is a part of of the story but it's not the whole story gender diverse people also have gender euphoria there, there's also moments of feeling great feeling awesome and just you know thriving. And so that's something that is often overshadowed by the more like pathological lens. So I, I would say that's like probably the main part of it is we want to talk about gender from a 
diversity lens. Right. And from a human rights perspective. Now, Ada, I know that you experience gender euphoria rather than dysphoria. So uh, can you tell us just a little bit about what that means? So <clears throat> I have probably experienced dysphoria throughout my life, but it's never been rampant or bad enough for me to go, well, I must be trans. Like, and it's it's always been something on my mind. Like, it, <laughs> it's been there for a long time. But I, I never really experienced gender euphoria until trying out the pronouns properly and like giving it an actual chance. And it was unbelievable the difference between going by he, him. And it was like, you can just use she, her. What do you mean? What do you mean I can do that? And so it's, it's a very different story from a lot of my friends who go like, I cannot stand to look in the mirror. It's painful. Um, which I've had a couple days like that before, but it's it's not as like day by day as a lot of people have. But that doesn't mean that my experience is any less than theirs. It's just a different path. And I'm hoping that you can define gender euphoria versus dysphoria uh, just for the purposes of this. And my understanding, and uh, please, Dr. Boss, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that dysphoria means that uh, when you look at the body that you're born into, you feel like you're not, you shouldn't be in that body. Whereas euphoria means that once you've started to live uh, as another gender, that you experience a sort of, uh, well, euphoria, uh, for lack of a synonym that I can think of mm -hmm. off the top of my head. Is that basically what that is? So I think body is one part of dysphoria, but it's not all of it. So some people will experience body dysphoria, meaning that they will feel incongruent with some of their, you know, we call them like primary or secondary sexual characteristics. So some people will have some discomfort and, or feel some incongruence around those characteristics, but some people actually do not feel any discomfort around their, their body at all. And they can still experience dysphoria. So dysphoria can also be social. And so, you know, social dysphoria is when someone misgenders you or someone will treat you in a very stereotypical gendered way, but that doesn't fit with you, right? And so it would be, again, using the wrong pronouns for someone, that could be dysphoric. So that experience of, of misgendering someone, that can be dysphoric in and of itself. And it doesn't have anything to do with the body necessarily, right? It's social in nature. Um, so dysphoria can have something to do with the body for some people, but for some folks, it doesn't. Um, and I think as Ada was talking too, like you can have no dysphoria and that doesn't minimize your experience as a trans or genderqueer person. Like we used to think that in order to prove, like I'm doing air quotes, you like prove your transness, you had to demonstrate that you, you're suffering. You had to demonstrate that you have a lot of dysphoria. That's actually very problematic, right? you can be trans and not have a lot of dysphoria or not at all, actually. So we're trying to recognize that spectrum of experience that it doesn't have to be, you know, this big dysphoria. For some people it is, but not for everyone. And another part of dysphoria too is, a big part of dysphoria is social in nature in the sense that it, it comes from the discrimination, right. right? So when I go somewhere, when I try to go to the washroom, man's washroom, women's washroom, I feel dysphoric. I feel dysphoric. Is that is the problem me or is the problem the system that has no room for me, right? right. But again, if, if, if I'm wearing the, the label, if I'm wearing the diagnosis, I have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, that's very problematic to, to make the individual wear a diagnosis that is in reality caused by a social context. 
Right. I'm always amazed at how the bathroom thing has become some sort of touchstone cultural issue where people really <laughs> hate the idea of changing from men's and women's bathrooms. I like it's so bizarre to me that that has become uh, one of the things you hear about the most. Right. I'm sorry. You wanted to say something. I did. One of the biggest tells and biggest signs. But uh, this is on the topic of gender euphoria. I apologize for backstabbing. Okay is something all of my life I have always considered like someone misgendering me as she, her as one of the highest compliments <laughs> because it meant I was like, oh man, I'm doing something right. And I don't know how we didn't pick up on this. <laughs> I don't know how we missed that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, we talked about dysphoria. If we want to talk about euphoria, do you want to share like, how that comes up for you. What does gender euphoria feel like for you, Ada, when you have it? It's it's just validating. It makes me want to be. Like, for mm -hmm. the longest time, before I got the trans diagnosis, I was just like, I'm going to be in bed and I'm going to be out, like a light. Like, this is it. Like, this is what I'm doing. Um, and, like, after coming around to being trans and, like, going by she, her, I've being able to get up better <laughs> like it's been mm. such a delight to be able to talk to people and have the right pronouns and not feel uncomfortable in my skin <laughs> which is fantastic i don't know that that's the way euphoria works for me is it just it keeps me going which is fantastic mm -hmm. yeah that's beautiful right. yeah now, now can it get you to get up before 4 p.m and you were saying about, uh, you know, treating gender diversity as a human rights issue. And we've seen around the world an increase in hate crimes against trans people uh, in mm -hmm. all kinds of laws that are being passed all over the world to specifically discriminate uh, against them. Uh, why do you think we're seeing that in the last, I don't know, five, ten years, maybe even less than that, in the last two, three years, this sort of renewed focus on specifically marginalizing this population? Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing like more and more of a divide, like more polarizing. Um, I think it, like we, we call this like anti-trans hate, like hatred directed at transgender diverse folks. I think it's it's always something that's been around. And when I say always been around, I'm talking about like in the history of colonization. Right. Right. Like the history of colonization is a history of anti-trans hate, basically. But we know for sure that there is an interaction between what we see being portrayed in the media and then how that will later influence public opinion and then lawmaking and then policymaking, like these two things really play off of each other. And what we see, like the representation that we see in the media is a lot of like fear mongering, a lot of misinformation, a lot of trying to scare people in a way uh, so that people feel really strongly about it. And then people will, you know, try to push forward uh, those anti-trans ideology, basically. Right. So that's a lot of what we're seeing right now. Um, if I can weigh in, and this is what I think, and I could be completely wrong, um, is it's a matter of there we're becoming more visible. Like it's very much we've become more represented. There's been more showing of trans people in media, in news, in culture, and the people who have sat back and gone, ah, 
this isn't a problem of mine. I don't have to worry about these people because they don't exist. And now suddenly they're being like shown, hey, by the way, these people exist. They're like, what? This goes against everything I know. We can't have this. And like, it's a very much like it's being shown to the masses who don't want to see it. And they're going, get this out of my face. I don't want to see this. I, you know, I think there's something to that. And I, I, I will just speak as a somebody who's been in media forever, right? Like, uh, that's my background. And it really wasn't something that was talked about, that was dealt with. Now you have actors, actresses who are trans, who are, you know, starring in popular TV shows, and there's a lot more representation. But at the same time, I'm thinking about the studies that, that show that I think it's a 1% of youth now between the age of 20 and 24 in North America identify as gender diverse in one way or another. But if you go up in age, right, the people who are 60 plus, the people who are even 40 plus are not identifying uh, as gender diverse in nearly the same numbers as the younger people are, right? So I think some of that is that there is a culture that's more welcoming on the one side of it and so people feel more comfortable coming out and saying that this is who they are. But on the other side, the backlash against it has grown as well. And I can't imagine, and you know, Dr. Boss, like, you tell me if you think this is true or not, but I cannot imagine that the number of people who are gender diverse is any different among 20 to 24 year olds as it is from 70 to 80 year olds. Mm -hmm. I mean, logically there, there's no reason why it would be, right? And we haven't seen that movement as you're describing, Eric, this movement of like, as we have more acceptance, the numbers go up, right? We, we saw the same thing with like sexual diversity, right? As we progressed and got more and more accepting of lesbian, gay, bisexual, pan, sexual people, we saw more and more people, you know, living authentically coming out. So then we see like an increase in numbers, like, oh, more people identify as. So that's, that's just, a reflection of more acceptance in society. But what we know is that in the younger generations, those numbers could be as high as like 10, 13, 15%. When we have a definition that's like more like broader, like if we talk about just being gender diverse, which encompasses like non-binary, you know, fluid and all, all of these gender identities, um, youth, you know, will identify as such up to 14, 15% of the population sometimes. So that's a significant portion, right? And again, we, we could potentially anticipate it being more. Like, we don't know how, ma how many people. It was the first time in Canada that we even had a question on the census about this. So we don't even know. Right. Right. And that's sort of it, right? I, I think the latest numbers I saw were from 2019. And uh, obviously, since then, there's been a giant pandemic. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the studies from 2019, the last numbers that I saw, of course, indicate everything that we believe that we, I think, intuitively can think are true. Right. Uh, gender diverse people are more likely to be homeless as a youth. They're more likely to use substances. They're more likely to experience suicidal ideology and that sort of thing. Uh, because mm -hmm. although there's a lot more support out there, it doesn't necessarily exist for those individuals in their exact circumstances. And so yeah. I think as the numbers go up and as we do policy statements and things like that, hopefully there's a little bit more of that support out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some people, you know, when I encounter this kind of like anti-trans rhetoric, like some people genuinely do not know 
they read something and they just think it's true. You know, they read like a piece of misinformation and then they, they think it's true. But some people, it's more than not knowing. It's like actively pushing against, actively uh, erasing trans people. And I think a lot of this comes from what we call like cisgender fragility, right? It's like all of a sudden feeling attacked when you're reminded that trans people exist. That's cisgender fragility. And so one of the ways that people respond to this fragility is attacking, pushing back, uh, denigrating. So I think that's a lot of what we're seeing. Now, you uh, help the people who are experiencing the effects of that cisgender fragility. I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit about what goes into cisgender fragility. What makes somebody feel attacked by the presence of trans people? Yeah, I guess if I had to summarize it, I would say unchecked privilege. Um, you know, like cisgender, when you're part of a, what we, we would call like a dominant group, like a socially dominant group or the group that has more power privilege, it comes with notions of privilege and not realizing your privilege. And so I think a lot of cisgender people don't realize that being cis is a privilege. I think that's where they react from a lot of the time. Some cisgender people will feel like trans people existing takes something away from them or is an attack on on them or is an attack on their values. It's not. It's absolutely not. But I think that's where that reaction comes from. I think, too, sometimes when we start talking about trans people just, you know, existing, cis people realize that they're going to have to do their homework or they're going to have to learn and adapt and change the way they do things. And that requires committing to changing change is uncomfortable, change can be scary. So sometimes people react from that place too, where they realize like, oh, I'm going to have to, you know, revisit all of my procedures. I'm going to have to revisit how I approach people. And I don't want to do that because that's uncomfortable. So there's some of that as well. You know, you were saying earlier with uh, sexual orientation over the years, right? It became more accepted in culture. And so people came out more often and lived their authentic uh, sexual orientation over time. And we sometimes talk about sexual orientation and gender identity together as sort of a lumped in thing. And sometimes we try to separate them completely, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there is a benefit to doing one or the other. I mean, our section at CPA is the sexual orientation and gender identity section. But those two Mm -hmm. things are obviously the specialties of vastly different groups of people. Yeah. So there's like benefits to putting them together and benefits of having them separate, you know, the benefits of having them together is just that the reality is that there's strength in community, there's strength in numbers. If we can have our lesbian, gay, bi, and pan, asexual friends supporting us, that's great. That's a good thing. I think too, we have to recognize that for some people, sexuality and gender identity are not things that you can dissect or completely separate. For some people, it kind of plays into one another. That's not the case for everyone. Uh, and I think there, there are cultural elements there as well. So in some cultures, maybe gender identity and sexuality are a little bit more intertwined together. But one of the downside of putting them together is that our needs are quite different. You know, we were talking about earlier, like transition or uh, living authentically as a trans person is looks very different than living authentically as a bi or, or pan or, or lesbian person. So um, when we lump it all together, it can really erase trans people's needs. And I think we're also at a very different place in terms of acceptance again, right? So the reality for trans folks is that we have a long way to go. It's true also for sexual 
diversity. You know, we we had a lot of good wins in terms of acceptance of sexual diversity. We still have a lot of a long way to go, but that's even more true with trans and gender diverse people. Like there's so much work to do. We're not at the same level of acceptance in society at large. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's what I'm here's where I'm going with this. All right. We have the LGBTQ acronym, right? Yes. And as Dr. Boss was saying, right, it creates a community because then you have a community of like-minded people who want to support one another and that's good for everybody. But you have LGB, which is lesbian, gay, bisexual, and then you add the T, which is transgender, and the queer, which is presumably covering a lot of other bases, and then the other people add a lot of other letters in too, right? Yeah. 2S, IA, all these things. So in that acronym, you're lumping it all together in a lot of ways, right? And I'm wondering if that is helpful or harmful in the sense that you want to deal with both these things separately in terms of, a, I guess, in a clinical way, right? Right. But mm-hmm. LGBTQ is a like banner under which everyone collectively gathers. It's not about the sexuality or the gender. It's about being somewhere in a spectrum that is not cis. Like you're like not normal to everyone else not cisgender heterosexual yes and this is why I'm, I'm wondering if that's helpful or hurtful to have all of that under one banner right because you hear a lot of the time about you know uh, trans exclusionary feminists right and people mm-hmm. who are very supportive of gay rights but not of trans rights and that sort of thing mm-hmm. all of whom mm-hmm. do operate under this banner yeah yeah Culturally, we share a lot of this, like similar experiences culturally, you know, in terms of like discrimination. So there are some similarities, but also some, some big differences, especially when we talk about like some people within the community who will discriminate against um, the community itself, right? It is helpful in some ways because it's good to be part of a community of people who have similar experiences, right? In terms of diversity sexual diversity, gender diversity. So it's good to have that community, but it is true that unfortunately within the community, there's a lot of discrimination too. There's a lot of lesbian, gay, pan pan or bi allies, you know, that will have transphobic views, unfortunately. That does happen. That does happen too. Yeah. Yeah. There are some, some members of the community that don't necessarily distinguish between this, you know, sexual orientation and gender diversity. And I think we see that more commonly in um, indigenous communities. So two spirit, um, two spirit individuals, you know, that usually encompasses gender identity, but also sexual identity. So it's not like two separate things. Those two things kind of interplay with with each other, which is just like a, a different way of conceptualizing it, a way that's not Eurocentric. The one last thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, we have a bunch of data from 2019, but then after that, this pandemic hit. And we've got the last two years, which has made it super difficult for people to, for example, access HRT. Now, Ada was like lucky and managed to uh, get in and get all the medications that she needs and the support she needs, but so many people haven't been able to do that. Uh, what are some of the things that you're dealing with that are pandemic related with your clients that you wouldn't have been dealing with, say, two and a half years ago? Mm-hmm. I think um, the biggest thing I've seen is just delays in accessing services. So, you know, trans healthcare is underfunded, underserviced. There's not a lot of trained healthcare professionals. So it's 
it's something that's hard to access in the first place and the pandemic just kind of exacerbated that. So longer delays to accessing care. Um, if people are accessing care outside of province or outside the country, travel restriction, travel bans just really made that even more complicated. Uh, we're talking also longer delays in terms of the legal transition. If you want to get your paperwork in order to change, you know, name or something like that, that also we were facing longer delays. Another thing that we're seeing is that for a lot of trans folks, their support system isn't necessarily the family. So some people face family rejection when they come out. And so they really rely on peer and community organizations for support. And with the pandemic, uh, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, it took some time for people to reorganize around offering like virtual services or whatnot. So at the beginning, there was like a period where people found themselves just without any, any support. So that's another, um, another big impact the pandemic had. And we were, I, we were talking about this a year ago into the pandemic, uh, specifically in context of LGB youth, right? Uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual youth who, you know, would have been on, say, a college campus where they would have had a peer group that they could, you know, interact yeah. with, uh, but who were stuck in the home uh, where they couldn't be out, they couldn't be their authentic selves. Uh, and is that something that I imagine trans youth have that even to a larger degree where, you know, you can be that online, but you can't necessarily be that in your home. You can't be that when you go to the grocery store or what have you. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot of the trans youth folks that I work with, you know, some of them, they couldn't be out in the home, but they were out everywhere else. So at work, they were out at school or, you know, um, they were out in other spaces, but not in the home. And so they kind of lost that during the pandemic because they were now stuck at home. So not being able to have moments or pockets in your life where you can live authentically, that really has a big negative toll on the mental health. Yeah. So when you guys uh, craft this policy statement, release the policy statement, what do you hope is the end result of that? Uh, is it for other psychologists? Is it for the general public? I mean, who do you hope is impacted in, in what way? I think we're hoping, you know, it's like a first step of accountability, recognizing the harm that the field of psychology has caused, in, you know, in, in perpetuating this like negative view of gender diversity. So it's, it's about accountability in the first place, but it's also about sending a clear message to other healthcare professionals, researchers in psychology. So people within the field, but we're hoping that it goes beyond that and potentially influence and encourage, you know, um, policymaking. We've seen the impact that the policy statement on conversion therapy, we saw the impact that that had in changing the law. So we're hoping that it, it might have some reach uh, in terms of influencing policy. Yeah. Well, I very much hope that it does. Uh, there are a lot of laws being proposed that are probably not good ideas and we can do anything to uh, help that cause. I'm all for it. Thank you so much for taking the time, uh, Dr. Boss and Ada. Uh, it's been great talking with both of you and I appreciate it. Pleasure to meet you, yeah. Many thanks to Ada and Dr. Jesse Boss, as well as to the guests on our previous podcast, Dr. Ada Sinecore and Dr. Kira Stockdale, for shedding some light on this pressing issue and for the work they're doing. Now, Jesse mentioned something toward the end of this episode, which is the historic harms that have been done to trans and gender diverse communities by the profession of psychology. If you haven't already, 
Listen to the previous episode of Mindful to hear more about what specifically those harms are from Dr. Sinecore. That does it for this episode of Mindful, which was produced, edited, written, and published by me, Eric Bowman. Our music, as always, is Avenues by David Taylor. Happy Pride Month, everyone.